you should be standing at a large intersection facing a huge green elevated railway. If you're facing the busy streets, the subway station should be to your left, and at your back there should be a bank with a large red sign that says Sparkassa. There are several ATMs in the foyer. Before we get going, make sure you have some cash on you. Many places in Berlin still don't accept cards, so press pause if you need to get some money first. I'd recommend getting around 20 to 30 euros. This is my Berlin neighborhood of Prenzlauerberg, my refuge, my sanctuary. Since the period following World War II, it's developed from a workers' area in ruins into a mecca for music, misfits, and tireless nightlife, all centered around the local bars. So what is it that defines this place that's drawn some people like a magnet, but led others to want nothing more than to escape? My name is Jeff Collier. I'm an American musician and DJ, and I'm going to show you some of the best bars in Berlin tonight. Along the way, I'll tell you a little bit about the past and present of this remarkable East Berlin neighborhood and what makes it so special. We'll also journey back in time to the late 1960s and the Cold War era when Prince Lauerberg was a part of socialist East Berlin for the incredible story of another American musician named Etta Cameron. After landing at an airport with nothing but a suitcase, African-American soul singer Etta Cameron unexpectedly found herself stranded right here in Prince Lauerberg unable to leave the country for five years. She persevered in these unimaginable circumstances to achieve unimagined success. But the price she paid for her fame was nothing less than her freedom. I'll tell you how Etta got here in the first place and how she fought her own struggle for freedom to escape from the clutches of Cold War intrigue. Look at the busy intersection with the big green train station buzzing with activity. Today, Prenzlauerberg is one of Berlin's most popular residential neighborhoods. It's hard to believe that until the middle of the 19th century, this area was mainly farmland. Escape and freedom can be like two sides of the same coin. I came here seeking freedom, but Etta Cameron was trying to escape from here to find her freedom. Let's get going. With your back to the bank building, turn right and then start walking. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'd been singing in my dad's little country church since I can remember. But when I discovered the drums at the age of 12, the fix was in. The devil was always going to win that one. Rock music was going to be my ticket to escaping small-town life. It was going to show me the world and a damn good time in the process, too. Once you know that where you're from is not where you want to stay, you're constantly on the lookout for a place that feels like home, where you don't feel like a misfit. What's a misfit? Well, I guess someone who just doesn't fit the standard mold at a particular place and time, who's constantly questioning things, even with their actions or their look. In any case, I knew early on that I wouldn't spend my life in the place where I was born. Look up now and keep your eyes open for a big round red sign with an airplane inside. That's where we're headed. So. Right after high school, I hit the road with a variety of indie bands in the States and Europe. On a tour in the late 80s, I fell in love with a German woman who I met in what was then West Germany. She ended up being my wife, but that didn't get me here yet. It still took a few years before I would find my home here in Prenzlauerberg as a misfit in residence. On this tour, you'll meet some other misfits like me and learn why they could only fit in right here in Prenzlauerberg. Okay, you should have arrived now at the entrance to a big open space, the Prater Garden. Look at the open gate to your right. 
This is a beer garden, and it's quintessentially German. Let's go in and walk to the center of the beer garden area. Look slightly to the right, off in the distance a little bit, and find the letters that say Prottergarten. They're lit up at night. I want you to walk towards them. You'll pass through another gate on your way there. If you're here in the summer, you're seeing long tables and benches, and it might already be crowded. If it's autumn or winter, the courtyard's probably empty. Okay, you'll want to head inside the restaurant building on the left. It's a flat building. That's the Prater restaurant entrance. Go in there. They'll know you're coming. Are you inside? Good. Stand a little to the side of the entrance door and take a look at the beautiful long dark wood bar in front of you. If someone asks if you want to be seated, just point to your headphones and they'll understand you're with Detour. Now look at the old bottles on top of the bar. Prater is an old German word taken from the Latin pratum, or meadow. In our journey back through the history of Prenzlauerberg, this place goes back the furthest. Prater's been serving its very own homebrew beer here since 1837, and in my humble opinion, it's the best locally brewed beer in Prenzlauerberg. We'll get one in a minute. First, look to the left side of the restaurant. Notice the red curtain and the small wooden stage in the back there? This place also has an illustrious history as an entertainment venue. Artists were already living in Prenzlauerberg back in the 19th century, and there were a good few misfits among them, too. Okay, if it's spring or summer and you want to sit outside, go back out in the courtyard through the main doors and look for the self-service counter straight ahead at the back of the beer garden as you exit. Get a beer, and if it's crowded, don't be shy about asking if you can sit down if there's space next to someone. That's what beer garden culture here is all about. If it's between October and March, stay inside the restaurant. Take a seat at the bar and place your orders there. Here's what I recommend. Order a large or small Prater Pils house beer, or a Prater Lager Schwarz, or simply dark beer, if you want to go for a heavier body and more robust taste. They also serve great traditional German meals here, but I recommend you try that some other time because you won't feel much like walking or drinking afterwards. Either way, I'd recommend you go ahead and pay right away so you don't have to pause again later. Pause me now and press play when you're seated and you have your drink. Look around you. This place has been going for almost 200 years. Pretty cool, huh? Look around at the people. It's a pretty mixed scene here, isn't it? That same vibe, that curiosity, and interweaving of people, it still characterizes Prince Lauerberg today. You could wear a big hat with a pink feather in here, and no one would pay much attention. Let me introduce you to Tolga. He's a manager here at Prater, and he knows the place inside out. In fact, you'll probably see him running around tonight taking care of folks, maybe even serving you a beer. He's a tall, dark-haired guy. Hello. I'm Tolga, and I've been working here for many, many years. Let me take you back to the 19th century. A certain Mr. Porat is said to have started serving beer here in 1837. But this place began developing into more than just an informal beer garden in 1852, when the Kalbo family purchased the establishment and started expanding it. During Prater's early years, it was a venue for a lot of left-wing political gatherings. 
When legislation was passed later on to ban official leftist party meetings, the workers began holding singing club and sporting club meetings here as covers for their political activities. You have to understand that the 19th century was quite a turbulent century politically, also in Germany. After the French defeat in the Franco-Prussian War, the German Empire was proclaimed in 1871 at Versailles, uniting all the scattered parts of Germany except Austria. Prussia was the dominant constituent state of the new empire, and the Hohenzollern king of Prussia ruled as its concurrent emperor, with Berlin as the capital. After 1891, Prata became a central venue for the annual May Day workers' celebrations. This is kind of the equivalent of Labor Day in the States, and originally it was an official holiday honoring the workers who were so essential to the emerging manufacturing industry. Nowadays, it's more famous in European cities, including Berlin, as today every year when anarchist protesters face off against riot police and street fights with burning cars, etc. In the early years of the 20th century, Marta Carbo, the widow of the owner Paul Carbo III, was a fan of classic plays. So she built a bigger venue that even had a large theater hall. But when she opened the theater on May Day with Schiller's sophisticated play Intrigue and Love with its complex sort of Cinderella meets Romeo and Juliet storyline, the audience wanted light entertainment started to desert the venue. Marta Calvo was too good of a businesswoman to make the same mistake twice and soon brass bands were playing concerts again in the 20s. People continued to come to the variety shows and open-air concerts she put on, until she finally threw in the towel in 1932. By then, a new type of medium had taken off. Film. The new man who took over was the head of a Berlin-based movie company. Now Prater was all about the world of film. German movie stars and famous musical performers continued to appear here until 1935. When Hitler declared total war, Prater, like many other venues, closed its doors, as all of the resources of society were mobilized to fight the war. Men were sent to the front to become soldiers, supplies to make beer were rare, and nobody spent money for entertainment anymore. Prater survived the war's major bombing raids, virtually untouched. The Allies knew about its reputation and spared it. Haha. <laughs> no, but seriously, Prenzlauer back had little industry, so it wasn't a main target for the air raids. Once the Soviets took over, they ordered the opening of a cultural establishment in Prater, and the first starving dances appeared as early as the summer of 1945, right after the war was over. Germany was in ruins, and there wasn't much to eat back then. This area, Prenzlauer Berg, fell into the sector controlled by the Soviets, and later would be part of East Berlin, the capital of the German Democratic Republic, or GDR. Prater now moved into its next phase under the socialist East German regime, continuing to serve as a venue for variety shows, theater, and cabaret. Throughout all the extreme political and social changes it experienced, Prata has always remained a gathering spot for rebels, artists, dissidents, and misfits. Thanks, Tolga. Everything changed again with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, and Prater, like the rest of Prince Lauerberg, experienced a revival. After the Berlin Wall fell, this neighborhood was full of abandoned buildings, which no one had cared for during the time of the GDR, and so squatters moved in. This rundown neighborhood with cheap rents attracted the alternative crowd. 
a new breed of outlaws and misfits, embodying a new no-rules ethic, descended on the district to fill the vacuum, reclaiming both its abandoned buildings and abandoned power structures. There's still a very vibrant underground scene in Prince Lauerberg today, by the way. We'll check that out at our next stop. In the first years after the wall came down, Prater put on everything from folk singer Donovan to alternative fashion shows, even techno raves. The attitude here was like anything goes, and there wasn't really any clear direction. Prater eventually settled into the concept you see here now and managed to survive. Today, Prater remains the home of Berlin's oldest beer garden and a central location embodying the idea of a place where everyone feels welcome and accepted. This is how this place always feels to me. Remember Etta Cameron, the American singer I mentioned before? She probably performed here in the 60s, and she likely also hung out and had a drink or two. She might have even sat right where you're seated now. After all, people like her performed at Prater all the time. We'll pick up Etta's story in a little bit with what happened to her when she arrived in East Berlin in 1967. Let's get moving, shall we? If you haven't quite finished your drink yet, pause me and press play again when you're ready to go. Let's go out to the sidewalk where we came in. By the way, when you get to the sidewalk, you'll see a big theater to the left of the gate. That's the second stage of one of Berlin's most famous theaters, the Volksbühne. They do lots of modern, innovative plays there, as well as some really cool concerts. So who was this Etta Cameron? She was an African-American blues and gospel singer born in 1939. And like me, she grew up singing in church before setting out to establish a music career that began to take off for her internationally in the late 1960s. It was the era of swinging London and the summer of love, but also of the Cold War, of Vietnam, of an America divided by race and a Berlin divided by the wall. Leave the Prater Garden through the metal gate we came in before and turn right. Continue walking now, keeping the street to your left. Our next stop is the perfect location for us to make our own little escape into this neighborhood's authentic underground scene. To understand how Etta got here, you have to know that the communist East German government saw an opportunity in the American civil rights movement to use it for their own anti-capitalist propaganda, and they began inviting African-American artists like Paul Robeson and Louis Armstrong to perform here, as a statement sort of saying, we communist East Germany stand with the oppressed in America. Whether they really did or not is a matter of speculation, but they certainly instrumentalized the cause to their own ends. In late 1967, Etta Cameron arrived in London to do a series of shows. She was 34 then. While she was there, she received a telephone invitation out of the blue to sing at a New Year's Eve party in East Berlin. Now, Etta wasn't a very political person, and she had little interest in the finer details of the East-West German divide. She wasn't even really aware that she was supposed to perform in the communist east side of Germany. She just wanted the gig. So she accepted the offer, and soon she received her plane ticket. She had married when she was 24, and that's how she got the name Cameron. But the marriage didn't last, and they divorced after six years. So Etta was alone in Europe, but she still had two kids, a son who was 10 and a daughter who was 8, back in the States. Cross this street when it's safe, and continue walking straight. When Etta arrived in Berlin, she unknowingly set out on a journey with fateful consequences beyond anything she could imagine. Etta finished her New Year's Eve show, and on January 1st, 1968, she had her pack bags, her plane ticket, 
and her American passport, and she was ready to return to London as planned. But when she arrived at the border crossing and showed the East German guards her U.S. passport, they demanded to see some other document too, some kind of GDR entry visa. They wouldn't let her out without that document being stamped. With the language difficulties, it took her a while to figure out what was going on. In the end, she understood that the border police were looking for a small piece of paper with nothing more on it than a few numbers that had been issued to her when she arrived. Thinking it was nothing more than a receipt or something, she hadn't given it any notice and had probably thrown it away. In any case, it was gone now. Etta was desperate, so she took a taxi back to the hotel and searched frantically for this tiny piece of insignificant-looking paper that was apparently so important, but it simply wasn't there anymore. There's a shabby-looking building coming up on the other side of the street. It's got a crumbling facade, and it's full of graffiti. Stop when you're across the street from it. We'll get back to Etta in a moment, but for now, let's time warp to the 90s. From here, you can see the full beauty of the eroding house painted with all sorts of defiant political slogans. Look up. See those big white letters? In German, they say, Kapitalismus zerstört. That means capitalism destroyed. This is not propaganda by the old socialist regime, it's a squatted house. Like so many houses here, it was squatted shortly after the wall came down and East Germany was in transition mode before the reunification of the two divided Germanys. Squatters took it over because it was standing here empty and no one was using it and no one knew who owned it. It had been GDR property before and the GDR didn't exist anymore. Welcome to 1990. This house remains the bastion of that wild, wild East early 90s atmosphere in Prince Lauerberg's history. Locals know it as Tuntenhaus, which literally means queer house. It even still looks the same from the outside because unlike most of the other buildings around here, it hasn't been gutted and renovated. Look at the banners with left-wing slogans stretched proudly across the face of the building covered in graffiti and glitter. I love everything this place represents. Tuttenhaus was originally squatted by a group of homosexual advocates. The Tuttenhaus community has grown since then, but they continue to occupy the house to this day, so it's kind of a little jewel here in Prenzlauerberg. Tuttenhaus has really stood the test of time. When it's safe, cross the street over to Tuttenhaus. Look out for trams, bikes, and cars. Check out the bathtubs surrounded by wooden seating. Want to jump in for a bath? Imagine, in the 90s, this whole street looked like this house. Bathtubs in front, colorful facades, everything was improvised. Let's continue walking in the same direction as before. The people here have created a great space out of nothing. No money, no big development companies. Today it's one of the last remnants of this post-Cold War settler mentality. We'll leave the 90s here and travel back to 1967 and see how Etta is doing while we walk to a movie theater next. Because when we left Etta earlier, she was living her own little horror movie. So Etta returned to the hotel and asked the receptionist where to find the U.S. Embassy. And then the real shock came. This was East Berlin. There was no U.S. Embassy. Etta now found herself totally isolated in a communist country with no diplomatic ties to the U.S. She was a mom, too, and her kids were back in the States. She was terribly worried about what would happen to them, and on top of everything, she was unable to speak the language. Speaking of language, by the way, this is a language school here on your left. 
Something like this didn't even exist back in the GDR, and no one here, virtually no one, spoke English. The kids in East Germany learned Russian in school, not English. Keep walking straight. Anyway, Etta was totally stuck and isolated, and she was worried sick about her two children back in the States. She hung on for days at the hotel until she finally managed to contact the agent who had originally booked her for the New Year's Eve show. He put her in touch with a Danish man named William Flicht. Now in his day job, Flicht was the East Berlin correspondent for a Danish newspaper, but he was also working as a liaison between the Western entertainment industry and the East German government. He was a kind of middleman organizing visas for Western artists to perform in East Germany. So when Etta met him the next day, she was so relieved to finally talk to someone who spoke English. Coming up on your left now is Berlin's smallest commercial movie theater. Look to your left for two wooden benches. Let's stop here. You'll see movie posters on the window and black letters that read Lichtblick Kino. Licht means light, Blick means gaze, and Kino means movie theater. One day a week, Lichtblick Kino stays closed and you never know what day it's going to be, so good luck. If that's the case today, check out the posters in the windows or the Lichtblick Kino website for what's running while you're in town. Our next bar stop is not far anymore. Let's go inside and get a drink. You can pause me now and have a look through their movies and showtimes. Press play again once you've got your drink and you're seated in the foyer. This theater has a grand total of 32 seats, and it focuses on art house movies, exotic foreign films and documentaries and things like that. Like Café Morgenwald, Lichtblick also popped up during Prenzlauerberg's post-wall free-for-all, finally settling in here on the ground floor of this squatted house in what used to be a butcher's shop. If you grew up on huge American multiplexes like I did, Lichtblick is a real up-close and personal movie-going experience. And my friend Lucian screened his documentary film called Berlinized Here. It's a beautiful film about the 90s in Berlin, when it really was the most exciting city on the planet, and most people didn't know that yet. This was a time when Tuntenhaus was nothing special on this street. It was just another squatted house. Lucian's movie highlights a time when Berlin was a city of open spaces and open opportunities. In other words, it was pretty much the complete opposite to the experience Etta had here in the 60s. So after being stuck in East Berlin for several days, she had met this guy Flicht, who spoke English and promised to help her. But her heart sank when he told her that without the missing paper, it was going to take some time for her to be able to leave the country. But how long? Have you finished your drink? Or do you want to stick around and watch a movie? Pause me now, and I'll wait for you outside. Let's continue walking in the same direction as before. Apparently, Etta's music wasn't the only thing that intrigued Flicked about her. So he suggested that in the meantime, she move out of the hotel into a room at his house in Prince Lauerberg, here this neighborhood. He also recommended that as long as she had to wait for her papers anyway, she could also put on a few shows which he would be happy to organize. Etta probably felt like she had little choice in the matter, so she said yes. We're continuing down Castagnale in the same direction to a place strongly connected to Etta, and probably a place you would least expect on a pub crawl, a church. Keep going straight. 
like you saw at Prater, throughout its history, there's never been a shortage of actors and artists, filmmakers, musicians, writers, and the like who actually set up house in Prince Lauerberg, but most of them did so voluntarily. For Etta, the days turned to weeks, and the weeks turned to months, and she was no closer to being able to go back home than she had been on New Year's Day. At the next corner, cross the street straight ahead and keep walking in the same direction. It's a pretty big intersection, so watch out for cars, bikes, trams, and whatnot. Keep walking straight. At this stage in 1968, Etta hadn't seen her two kids in over a year, and she missed them terribly. But she'd at least made arrangements with her family in the States to take care of them. Meanwhile, William Flick was proving to be highly effective at directing her career in East Germany and throughout the Eastern Bloc countries. Let's stop at the second house on your left for a minute. It's number 68, and it looks almost as decrepit as the Tunton House with a crumbling facade and graffiti all over. Look at the building here with the dirty gray-brown facade. When I first got here after the wall came down, the houses looked pretty much the same, but the atmosphere was different. We, the musicians, artists, people like those from Tunton House had taken over. My first trip to Prince Lauerberg was in the winter of 1994. I'd come to shoot two videos with my band, TASS. We stayed in a real GDR flat with a shower next to the kitchen sink and a foot pump to pump out the water after the shower. All of the buildings were gray like this one, and they were still full of bullet holes from the end of the Second World War. Imagine that all the streets here in East Berlin looked like this in the 60s, with very little light at night. Etta was trapped in a depressing environment of fear and depression. Aside from his apparent inability to break through the East German bureaucracy and get the papers she needed to leave, after a few months, Flick had become Etta's new manager and her new lover. While her feet seemed virtually chained to the ground, her star was actually on the rise, and the stage was the only place where she felt she could breathe at all. This created a huge emotional conflict in Etta. Suddenly she had a new lover and a thriving career. But at what cost? Of course, as her manager, Flick took a cut of everything she made, and, let's say, he kept back her part as well. Etta wasn't experienced on an international scale. Look at your phone. This is Etta live on stage with a famous German actor named Manfred Krug. In her own way, Etta was a tragic misfit here too, and there was nothing cool about it. She didn't fit in at all and she wanted to get out, but she couldn't. Okay, let's keep walking straight. Etta had started performing in jazz clubs in Miami when she was only eight years old. She became well-known on the local scene, but she gave up singing when she married her first husband. She then began studying to become a pediatrician. She only started performing again after her divorce. Her career then really started in 1967, when she was on a radio show called The Peppy Fields Show. After this, she was invited to sing at the London Jazz Festival. That was her first trip to Europe. From there, she went straight from London to Berlin to perform at the New Year's concert. Now, our next destination is a vital part of our story and a direct link to Etta herself. Zionskirche, or Zion's Church, as it's called in English. Etta played there frequently. Yes, in a church. A U.S. blues singer performing in a church in a communist state. You know, communist countries weren't particularly fond of religion. 
But it was not all unusual in East Germany for secular music concerts to be held in churches, like blues, rock, or jazz, even punk shows. Many musicians in the GDR were denied official permission to perform because their music was often critical of the government. But in the shelter of the churches, they found their audience. There's a tram stop coming up, the little glass enclosure you see with a roof and benches. Look both ways for bikes, cars, and the tram. And when it's safe, walk over to the other side. Are you with me? Good. Let's keep walking straight and then turn right at the next corner. Flicht got at a top bookings performing her gospel and R&B standards on stages and TV screens throughout Soviet Eastern Europe. And the audiences warmly welcomed her amazing voice, her exotic beauty, and her distinctive laugh. She was like a fresh breeze in a stale gray world. But the secretive Mr. Flicht assured her that it was all just a matter of time until she could get home to her kids. Turn right here. There's a beautiful 19th century neo-romantic church coming up. Zionskirche is a Protestant church built in 1873. Cross the next street up ahead when it's safe and walk towards the church. I'll meet you there. In the GDR, churches were tolerated, but they were also under heavy surveillance. The audiences of unapproved musical acts were regarded as highly suspicious. They and the churches were monitored by the East German secret police organization called the Stasi. The Stasi spied on the GDR's population to identify possible opponents and dissidents. Welcome to Zionskirche. I want you to follow the cobblestone path that leads all the way up to the church entrance. You have to imagine that back in the 80s, this church was a meeting place for the opposition and one of the key locations in the civil uprising that eventually brought down the Berlin Wall. But that's a whole other story. When you reach the church entrance, I want you to stop for a moment. Playing shows at these churches, organized by her Svengali-like manager, and all monitored by the Stasi, Etta was pursuing her career routine, and it was working. Her singing career here was really taken off. You should be standing in front of the main entrance to the church now. Etta was in her element, a natural, just as much at home in the media spotlight as she was singing in church. She certainly did a good job of hiding any public signs of the stress her predicament must have caused her. Given her situation, maybe the spotlight was the one place she could really escape, at least for a little while. While glowing reviews claimed that her voice could melt ice, Etta's manager Flick was pulling all the strings in the background. He even got her starring roles in two hit East German movies called Not With Me, Madam, and Hey Do, or Hey You. Listen to her performing the song Jungle City USA in this film. beautiful voice, don't you think? Look at the huge bell tower. You should be right in front of it. These bells are really loud on a Sunday morning, especially if you have a hangover. Etta had meanwhile become a celebrity in the communist world. Two years earlier, she'd been struggling to establish her career, and now she was a bona fide movie star. She wasn't a star in the United States at the time. There she was a struggling artist, so on the one hand, it made sense that she would take this opportunity to play in Germany. She would have taken the opportunity to play almost anywhere. And now with such a meteoric rise, it made perfect sense, right? But how? Flick's management skills? 
Well, documents have meanwhile revealed that her Danish mystery manager was more invested in her church gigs than originally assumed. Are the pieces beginning to fall into place yet? Remember, for the communist East German government, churches and the concerts there were hotbeds of dissident activity and they were closely monitored. The Stasi was determined to track anyone in the churches who appeared suspicious. So who better to keep an eye on all these churches and the personalities involved in them all over East Germany than the Western foreigner responsible for booking the shows and traveling with the artists to each performance? Yep, William Flicht, the Danish journalist and entertainment manager, was also moonlighting the whole time as a Stasi agent. And since Flicht was their man in East Germany's churches, the Stasi were happy to subtly assist at his rise to stardom, especially on the church circuit. Let's leave this square now. With your back to the church, turn right and follow the path that leads to the street corner. When you get there, I want you to cross the street to the little pub you see on the corner opposite to your left. I think it's time for a drink. This bar is called Dave Lombardo. Music fans among you, particularly metal fans, will probably know the name Dave Lombardo as the original drummer in the famous thrash metal band Slayer. Well, the bar Dave Lombardo is by no means a metal hangout, as you'll see. You can, however, meet a lot of other misfits in there who found their own sanctuaries here in Prince Lauderburg. When it's safe, go ahead and cross the street toward the entrance to the bar. And speaking of safety, a word of warning before we go in. This is a smoker's bar. So if you don't want to stay inside, you can come back out and listen to this portion of the story out front. Okay, pause me here, head inside and get a drink. I'll tell you more about Edo when we leave. Again, I suggest you pay right away. Press play when you're seated comfortably. Got a drink? Good. Welcome to Dave Lombardo. Its full name is Ich kauf mir Dave Lombardo, wenn ich reich bin. That's Berlin-German dialect that essentially means, one day when I'm rich, I'm going to buy me Dave Lombardo. The name itself is a perfect example of Berlin's renowned dry humor at its very driest. And basically, it's just an almost Monty Python-esque, senseless word game designed to stick in your head forever. But it has no significant influence on the kind of music they play here. I did, however, meet Dave Lombardo once in a recording studio in the 90s. Turns out, he was a fan of my band, Tass. How cool is that? Now look toward the little stairway leading to the back. It's to the right of the bar. They often use this stairway as an improvised stage for bluesy singer-guitarists. Like the misfits who took over Prince Lauerberg, sometimes the artists take over this whole place. I wouldn't fit in here with my drum kit, but I come here often to meet friends and fellow musicians. One of them is another misfit buddy of mine named Joe. He's also a drummer. Drummers hanging out at a bar called Dave Lombardo. Who would have thought? Joe was already a regular in Prince Lauerberg even before the fall of the wall. Hi, my name is Joe Dilworth. I'm from London in England. I've been living in Berlin since the early 2000s, but I've been visiting here since uh, the mid-80s, and I now live here in Prince Lauerberg. I'm a musician. Uh, I play the drums and also a photographer. And also, I have a bookshop here called Bildband Berlin. Bildband means picture book in German, and we specialize in all kinds of books about photography, and we have exhibitions, and kind of the center for photography in Berlin. 
initially I came to Berlin just to visit a friend of mine who was living in Neukölln in West Berlin and that was in about 1985. I stayed for the summer and it was quite amazing to see the city that was uh, the front line of the Cold War that I'd grown up with. It was also a really iconic place for anyone interested in music. I mean, I'm not the first musician ever to be drawn to Berlin. It's been uh, a magnet for all kinds of musical misfits over the years. Some of them famous like Bowie, Iggy Pop, Nick Cave. But Berlin's also produced its own influential musicians like um, Nina Hagen from East Berlin and Anschlussende Neubauten from West Berlin. And of course, all kinds of techno and electronic um, musicians and artists. It's been um, the center for that. Of course, I'm not nearly the first musician ever to be drawn to Berlin. This city has attracted a lot of musical misfits over the years, from the really famous like Bowie, Iggy Pop, Nick Cave, but also Berlin has produced its own uh, its own left field acts, like Nina Hagen, who was actually born in East Berlin but came to West Berlin, uh, and made it there, and also Einstein Sende Neubarten, who uh, um, started out in in West Berlin in the eighties. But also, it's been um, really important in the development of electronic music, all kinds. I really enjoyed being in the, the GDR, but uh, I enjoyed leaving as well. I think for people who were really part of the underground, they were taking risks which were hard to, uh, hard to fathom, really. Uh, to stand up against the state was quite a, a revolutionary act. Uh, and in fact, the church uh, across the road here, the Zionskirche, was part of the resistance to the state. They had illegal printing presses where they made um, uh, made flyers for punk shows and actually bands used to play in there sometimes. It was um, quite an important place in the resistance against the state. In the 80s, I got to know some East Berliners when I was visiting both East and West Berlin. But when the wall came down, things started changing really quickly. And each time I visited, I could see the extent of the change. And I guess I kind of moved because I wanted to see the change happen in, in real time. And then a friend of mine was, uh, was moving away for a few months and I took over his apartment and uh, I ended up staying. But I certainly didn't plan to be here this long. It just gradually become my home. I mean, it's not that far from London, so I travel backwards and forwards, but uh, this is really where my home is now. For me, as a photographer, when I was visiting Berlin in the 80s, it was like stepping back into my childhood because everything here was at least 20 years behind. The way that people were with each other and the way the streets worked, you know, it wasn't completely taken over by traffic in a way. It was really like looking at the London of my childhood. It's still got some of that character and it's reminded me of that kind of rebellious, energetic spirit that was kind of fading in London, but really quite strong here. I used to work for a music magazine called Melody Maker in London and they'd always send me on the trips behind the Iron Curtain because they knew I loved all this stuff. They sent me to cover a political song festival in East Berlin in early 1989 where 
bands had been invited from all over the world to, to play at this festival. I got to meet a lot of people there from East Berlin who uh, I stayed in touch with, and that was my real introduction into life in Prenzlauberg. So here we are in Dave Lombardo. Have a look around. This is a very typical bar from Prenzlauberg. Uh, they've got some great beers in here, and some of my old flatmates work in here, in fact, from when I first came to Berlin. I've always been involved in music, and I played drums in lots of bands like... Uh, the Raincoats and the Faith Healers and Adam 2X. I also played in a band called Stereolab and Tim, the guitarist, also decided independently to move to Prenzlauerberg about the same time in the early 2000s. In some ways, uh, because there were a lot more possibilities here than London, and it was generally the feeling that London was near the end of a, of a cycle and Berlin was more at the beginning of that kind of creative cycle. It was a, a better place to come and work. And since I was uh, an old friend and just living down the road, uh, I did some drum recordings for him, initially uh, for some film soundtracks, and then it gradually morphed into becoming a band called Cavern of Antimatter. We're all based around Prenzlauerberg, and I guess since we started out making film soundtracks, it's still got an element of that in it. It's all instrumental, with a lot of um, electronics and also live instruments. A little bit psychedelic, but elements of techno and krautrock. It's, um, it's a, a mixture of all different kinds of things. I originally started out as a magazine photographer, mostly for... British music magazines, but because I was involved in the music scene, I ended up doing a lot, a lot of uh, record sleeves and uh, publicity pictures for uh, bands like um, My Bloody Valentine and also for Goldfrapp and Nick Cave. So it all, all leads into each other. Okay, let's get back to Jeff. Oh, since Joe mentioned PJ Harvey, it's worth noting that they were in fact a couple for a while. He jokes that when it was over, Polly was so pissed off at him that she wrote an entire album about, quote, What an asshole I am. But nowadays, Joe and PJ are friends again. She even asked him to drum for her in the encore at one of her recent Berlin gigs. Okay, finish your drink and let's move on. I'll see you outside. Pause me now and press play once you're out on the street in the fresh air. Are you back outside? With your back to the pub facing the church, turn right and continue walking in the direction we came from. Let's return again to the year 1969 and Etta Cameron. Remember, we now know that her manager Flick was a Stasi agent. Now, after more than a year of being stranded, the strain of all the work, unpaid by the way, except for the room and board doled out at will by Flick, was one thing. But she found out only later that her family back in the U.S. had hired several private detectives when they lost contact with her on New Year's in London. The detectives never even found out that she was in Germany. She wrote letters that Flick promised to deliver, but none of these letters were ever sent. The sidewalk will turn slightly to the right here. Just continue following it. Being separated from her children in America for almost two years now began to really eat Etta up. They say home is where the heart is. Well, a mother's heart is usually with her kids. 
Ada already had a heart condition for many years, and the constant emotional stress was beginning to put her in the hospital now on a regular basis. Realizing that he was in danger of inadvertently killing the goose that had laid the golden egg, Flick put his connections and organizational talents to work, and voila! Suddenly, Etta's two children had joined her in East Berlin. Cross the street ahead toward that big yellow building, then continue walking straight. Watch for traffic and cross when it's safe. Reunited with her kids, Etta's spirits and her health picked up significantly, but she began asking herself how Flick could have pulled that off but still not be able to get her out. Are you with me? Keep walking straight to our next stop. I've run across plenty of creepy characters in my career in the music business too. Keith Richards once called that aspect of the music business the price of an education. But I've also worked with amazing people, plenty of them. In London, one of my favorite encounters was working with producer Tony Visconti, most famous for producing many of David Bowie's albums, including his final album, Black Star. As a huge Bowie fan since I was a teenager, working and playing together with him is still one of my proudest achievements. I haven't really told you yet how I actually came to Berlin. After we had married in the States, my German wife and I moved to London in mid-1988, and I got busy looking for studio drummer work and bands to play with. After about a year in London, I was getting more and more work in Ireland, so the obvious step was just to move there. So in late 1989, we packed up and escaped the big smoke. Next stop, Dublin. In Dublin, I was busy working with bands like The Waterboys and Cactus World News, recording and touring in Ireland, the UK, Europe, and New York. But after about three years, I began to tire of my hired gun status. I was itching to grow musically, but I wasn't sure how yet. And then, because life has a way of answering unanswered questions, my wife got pregnant. It seemed like a good idea then to be close to at least one set of grandparents, so we packed up and moved off to Germany. Stop a few feet before you reach the next corner. Look across the street. There's a convenience store there called Presse Shop. We're going to do something now that's illegal in most of the U.S., but totally normal here. We're going to carry on the time-honored Berlin tradition of the Wegbier. Berlin's unique take on one for the road, or in other words, a bottle of beer to drink while we walk. And believe it or not, you're also doing your good deed of the day because there's even a built-in charity function with a Wegbier. You'll see. We're going to grab ours here at this store called Presser Shop, right across from where we're standing. When it's safe to cross, head over there. We'll meet in front of the main door. Here we are. It's one of the many privately owned late-night convenience stores known in Berlin as Spätis. Spät means late, and most Spätis are open all night. Need a toothbrush at 3 o'clock in the morning? Find a Spätie. Want a Wegbier? Find a Spätie. Some people get all their groceries from these places. Okay, here's what you do. Walk inside, walk over to the fridge to your right, and take out the beer or beverage that you want. And for all my U.S. compatriots, this is going to feel unusual for you, but it's completely legal. You don't need a brown paper bag, and no one's going to take you for a bum or an alcoholic. Pause me now. Grab a bottle out of the fridge in the right corner of the shop. Pay the clerk at the counter and tell them to open the bottle for you. Sign language will do. If you don't want one for the road, you can skip this, but maybe it's something to take advantage of while you're here in Berlin. Press play when you've got your drink and you're back outside. 
got a beer? Cheers. Taking a beer for the road is really common for Berliners. With your back to the Spady now, turn left and at the corner left again. After you turn left, keep walking straight until the next crossroad. We have a little bit of a walk in front of us to our final destination for tonight. We're heading to the bar that made me realize Berlin was destined to be my home. 8mm Bar. There's even a sort of micro-ecosystem associated with a Begbia. When you finish it, just put the bottle down in a safe spot near the sidewalk where nobody's going to run into it or ride over it with their bicycle. An entire group of people walks around at night picking up these bottles to supplement their income. And by daylight, the bottles are gone. This is a really charming, if unusual, form of direct action helping out fellow Berliners in need. Keep walking straight now until the next intersection. So, back to Etta. She had been stuck in Berlin now for over two years, but at least she was back together with her kids. And together with Flicht, they had become this strange kind of family. When Flicht proposed a vacation to Denmark with her kids, Etta realized that something wasn't right. Flicht had been telling her for years now that she couldn't leave the country, and now he was proposing a vacation abroad? She realized he had the power to get her children in and out, and he could even get her out of East Germany, but only if she was with him. In Denmark, Etta and the kids were never left alone for a private moment, so she began to think about an escape. Her boy was just 13 years old at the time, and her daughter was only 11. She definitely wanted a different life for her kids, so when they returned to East Berlin, Etta knew she was in a tight spot. By now, Flick had also confiscated her U.S. passport, for safekeeping, of course. Turn right at the next corner, then cross the street when it's safe and continue walking. Our final stop is coming up soon. The worst shock for Etta came when her children's visas expired and they had to return to the States. In the following months, Etta even lost touch with them. She knew in her heart that she had to do something. But what? How? Not surprisingly, her health deteriorated again. And in 1972, Etta had a heart attack. Now she felt like there was truly no escape. Four years before, a quick flyover from London for one show had turned into the worst kind of emotional roller coaster ride. There's a playground to your right. I'm a father too, and I can totally understand how lost Etta must have felt without her kids. She found herself living in a nightmare. She had risen to unbelievable heights and become a household name loved by millions in the Soviet Eastern Bloc. But she had also been tricked and cheated. She'd seen her children returned, only to have them torn away again. And now she feared she might even be dying. In the hospital, Etta was visited by friends from a Danish musical group that performed regularly in East Germany. She finally opened up to these friends about Flick and told them everything that had happened. A few days later, they returned and told Etta they were going to get her out of East Germany, come what may. Etta's friends started to make plans for her escape. She returned to Flick's house from the hospital. And shortly thereafter, her Danish friend showed up in a van claiming they wanted to take Etta out for some fresh air. Flick didn't seem too concerned, but he still checked that her U.S. passport was hidden away. Cross the next street when it's safe and continue walking straight. The infamous 8mm bar is not far away anymore. Etta already knew her passport wouldn't help her anyway because she had no exit visa. The game was on.
She was terrified. What if he found out? What if it didn't work? Would she end up in an East German jail? They all said their see-you-laters casually to Flicht, got in the van, and headed straight to the city of Rostock, where they planned to board a ferry to Denmark. They all knew that the stakes were either freedom for Etta, or an unknown period of time in an East German prison for smuggling a person out without papers. How's your beer? If you're finished, don't forget to leave it safely out of the way. We're almost there. When they arrived to board the ferry, their nerves were on end. Etta's knees were shaking and her palms were soaked. Then the East German border guards approached. Cross the next street when it's safe and continue walking straight. Etta was sure it was over. But when the guards saw the Etta Cameron, they behaved more like teenage boys. They begged her for autographs and pictures and asked Etta when she was playing next in East Germany. She replied with a shaky voice, next month, and named a venue in some small town. And the guards were so beside themselves with excitement that they waved the van through without even asking for her passport. After all she had been through, isolated, tricked, used, it seems the hard work had finally paid off. And to sweeten the deal, Etta had the satisfaction of knowing that all the fame the Stasi had worked to help her achieve had now helped her escape. We'll continue going straight and turn right at the next corner. Etta and her friends arrived safely in Denmark, and she immediately checked into the hospital and finally received the medical treatment she needed. Soon after, her children joined her from the U.S. They reunited and all settled in Denmark, where Etta lived in her own well-deserved sanctuary, no longer a misfit or a prisoner. While Etta wasn't able to recreate the rousing success of her years in Berlin, she was free. And she continued performing and recording until she passed away peacefully in 2010. We're approaching a big intersection. Turn right at the corner and continue walking. While Etta Cameron finally found a home and a happier existence in Denmark after her nightmare here, I, on the other hand, found my home here in Prenzlauerberg. I'll tell you how. We've almost made it to my little sanctuary now, my home. When I worked with Tony Visconti back in London, I met a couple of German musicians who had also worked on those records. So when my pregnant wife and I arrived in Germany, I reconnected with those guys. We formed a new band called TASS, with me singing instead of drumming. And soon we signed a record deal. We went on to make two albums and tour Europe. Being away so often with the band, ultimately broke up my marriage. So let's fast forward to the summer of 2006, when I was just working on a recording project in a studio on this road. I lived in a small town in western Germany at that time, somehow just as lost as Etta here back in the 60s. I certainly felt like a misfit, and I hadn't found my home in this world yet. I had come from Alabama, traveled the world, married, divorced, and I was still looking for something something I couldn't even describe, until I found it here in Berlin, here in Prenzlauerberg. That evening I was walking down this street, exactly where we are now, for an after-work drink when I stumbled into this bar. I won't tell you too much about the bar at this point, 
You'll find out for yourself anyway. Just this. Basically, it's a dive. Follow the right curve that the street takes. It's not far now. It's a kind of dive where on a nondescript Wednesday night, you'll find Radiohead's drummer chatting with friends at a table while fat white family prop up the bar and Interpol are milling around the bathroom where at least one urinal is guaranteed not to work. This bar is a sanctuary for misfits. Here was where all the others like me met up, and it all made sense. Stop when you've reached a white building with big front windows and black awning on the ground floor. The bar doesn't have a sign, but you're at the right place when you've reached house number 177B. Found it? Welcome to 8mm Bar. Don't go inside right away. You can't get in wearing your earphones, so we'll say our goodbyes here first. When I first walked into this place back in 2006, the music that greeted me was incredible, like Sonic Youth or My Bloody Valentine, really noisy. Black and white footage of the cramps lit up the wall, and I found myself surrounded by a crowd of colorful misfits in their own right. I got goosebumps. And I guess just a combination of all these things, the characters, the great vibe, this bar unlike any place I'd ever been, and I literally thought, holy shit, I've died and gone to heaven. It all came together in this zoo of the eccentric, the disaffected, even the pretentious and the absurd. It was wonderful. And it's no joke when I say that from that moment, I knew I was going to move to Berlin. It took me a couple of years to make it happen, but I did. And by then, I had actually even forgotten the name of this bar. Finally, I heard about a cool apartment vacancy, and when I went to see the place, my chin hit my chest. It was right here, at the house with that bar. So in 2014, I moved in, and now when people ask me where I live, I often just say, above the mirror ball. I'm constantly surrounded by good friends, crazy characters, and great music. You know, we're all looking to escape something. And we're all looking to find something, too. I found the kind of place where the misfits fit in, both here where I live, and in a broader sense in Prince Lauerberg in general. I'm not down in the bar every night. That would kill me. But I like knowing that it's there and what it stands for. Because from the rock stars, to the wannabes, to the don't cares, to the photographers, the painters, writers, filmmakers, groupies, street urchins, and all the beautiful, flawed creatures in between. We're all misfits here, and nobody makes a fuss about any of it. This is our church. At 8mm, you leave your preconceived notions at the door, and inside, time stands still. Oh, one last thing. Look for the mirror ball when you're inside, and think of me. I live somewhere up there above it. Cheers, and have a great night.